Well, we're going to look at God's Word now, and um, since we are <coughs> um, looking at the next in our series of uh, what does it mean to become a Christian, and uh, so I'll say more about that in a second, but first of all, I want you to turn to two places in the Bible, and the first is Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, and uh, verses 1 to 18, and then I want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, so you might want to put your finger in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So Acts chapter 11, and uh, the gospel is going forth, has been going forth to the Gentiles in chapter 10, um, which is a new step in the advance of the gospel. And now in chapter 11, uh, we uh, we hear more of that story of the advance of the gospel. Let's read the first 18 verses. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me, Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts and prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at the very moment, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. And all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, They fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And then turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and just reading four verses, uh, verse 8. And Paul writes to the Corinthian church for the second time in this letter, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, that's his previous letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. 
As it is, I rejoice because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But what eagerness to clear your your name, yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for... Uh, your word again and once again we ask that you would come and minister to our souls uh, speak into our hearts on this important topic of repentance we pray in Jesus name Amen Amen. so we're in this series of uh, sermons on what it means to become a Christian uh, what happens when you become a Christian what uh, happens within the person who becomes a Christian, and what happens for the Christian uh, as a result of all that Jesus Christ has done. And we are still working through the what happens in the Christian. And uh, today we're going to look at this topic of repentance. And uh, let me start off by telling you a couple of stories about repentance uh, from my own experience. Um, The first time I... came across the, the, the idea of repentance was probably as a, an 11 or 12 year old boy uh, walking up the high street of Ayr where I was born and uh, there was a man in a, a sheepskin jacket and uh, one of these kind of Humphrey Bogart type hats uh, standing but he was standing there with a big pole And on the top of the pole was a big placard. And it said, repent, for the end is nigh. And uh, he had these slightly angular features. He looked quite an intimidating character with his hat and sheepskin coat and this this placard. And uh, most of the time the man was standing there silent. And I do remember, but walking up to pass him by and almost at the point where I was about to pass him by he suddenly yelled out repent (laughs) for the end is nigh and uh, that was my introduction to repentance what on earth is he talking about I had no idea Uh, but what I thought at the time was I don't like you particularly (laughs) Uh, 12 year old boy well there you are I knew it had something to do with sins because I was a Sunday school kid and I, I'd come, you know, I'd, I knew about sins and wrongdoing and so on. And I thought it was probably something to do with that. But it's quite hard for me to, to have a healthy view of repentance as a result of that, uh, because, that because of that image that was left in my mind. Second story is uh, about 20 years ago, in fact, just over 20 years ago. Um, I got the chance to go to Belarus um, with my then pastor, uh, Tim Gunn, who is now retired. But uh, every year, uh, Pastor Tim would go to Belarus uh, to, to minister to um, IFES students. You know, it's, a, it's connected with UCCF, if you know the universities and colleges, Christian Fellowship. That's the international 
kind of part of the, the organization. And uh, these essentially foreign to Belarus students would go and minister to Belarusian students. And Pastor Tim would go and minister to the, the, the workers. And he would take a couple of people with him from his own church. So I got a chance to go uh, there. But, and uh, one of the things I, I remember was uh, talking to Belarusian Christians was that they often talked about their conversion to Christ in terms of the day they repented. So I remember the pastor of that Belarusian church who had very sketchy English, but he, he said, I remember when I was a... I was, my bad Russian accent, but uh, I remember when I was a, a teenager, I repented of my sins. And I repented. And that was the day I, I repented. And that's all he said about it. Uh, it was the day of repentance. Now in the West, we were, I think Western church, we're more used to talk about coming to faith or being converted or being born again or believing or something like that. But we don't often talk about repentance. Um, and uh, that's not to say there isn't actual repentance, but we're just not used to talking about it. And so we're going to talk about it today. We're going to talk about repentance. What does it mean? What is it? What does it mean? What does it look like? And, uh, and it's appropriate that we talk about it at this point in the service, uh, in the series of sermons. Um, but just let me remind you where we've been. So we talked about what is the first step that happens when somebody becomes a Christian? The first step is that God calls. So God issues a call. That's more than just somebody preaches a sermon. It's like within the sermon, God speaks. And the person hearing it doesn't hear a sinner speaking to them, but they hear God speaking to them. It's that divine call from God to come to him. So that's the first thing. The second thing we've looked at is regeneration. Something that happens within the person themselves. How are they enabled to hear the call? It is because, as it were, so the Bible uses three terms, three different kind of terms, there may be more actually, but either they become born again by the Spirit of God, they are raised to life through Christ, and I can't remember the third one, I haven't written it down. There's another one. <laughs> Somebody help me. Do you remember? <laughs> I'll probably remember later. Um, but you know, this idea uh, of being, uh, uh, or regeneration, sorry, that's the word. <laughs> regeneration itself. Uh, the palingenesia. Uh, oh, new creation, sorry, that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. New creation. That's it. Susan's, my wife's giving me a thumbs up. It's always useful to have a wife who can remember better than you can. <laughs> But that's, so there's the call, there's regeneration, and then last week we looked at faith. How does faith come? And it's not a matter of you deciding anything. Because, remember, you're, before you're regenerated, you're dead in your sins. Uh, you're still in the womb, you're not born again yet. You're still the old creation. You can't do anything yet. And so God needs to come and give you faith. He gives the gift of faith. 
And that goes along with regeneration, this new birth. And so you find yourself, this is your experience, you find yourself believing when previously you didn't. You find yourself believing. There's something compelling about the gospel. Something compelling about Jesus Christ. You find yourself drawn to him in a way that you cannot explain perhaps. And yet it is compelling. That's what faith is. Faith is always a sense, has a sense of compulsion about it. It's inescapable. You've got to believe. You can't do anything else. And, uh, and today we come to a fourth aspect of that work that God is doing in the person, which is repentance. And repentance always goes with faith. Jesus, when he was preaching the gospel, and he, he burst onto the scene in the early chapters of Mark, uh, in Mark 1.15, uh, he comes like this. He, Jesus' ministry, his message is this. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. You know, believing and repenting go together. Faith and repentance Go together. So they are uh, distinguishable ideas. You can distinguish them, but you cannot separate them. It's a very important uh, concept in theology. You can distinguish things, but you can't separate things, some things. Uh, That applies in all kinds of areas. So you can't have faith, true faith, without repentance of sin. And you can't have repentance from sin without at the same time having faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, It's like heat and light from the sun. You can distinguish heat and light, but actually you can't have one without the other. Uh, Heat and light from the sun. It's simply impossible. So, repentance and faith. So John Murray, one of the great uh, theologians of the last century, um, put it like this. Uh, The faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith, And the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. See, faith and repentance go together. So this morning I've got three questions. uh, This morning as we look at repentance. Firstly, what is it? What is Jesus expecting when he says, repent and believe? Secondly, where does it come from? Is it from us? Is it a response from us? Well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. If you've been paying attention to the passages we read, uh, you'll know the answer already. Thirdly, what does repentance look like? What are the marks of true repentance? And so the first two will be quite brief and the third will be a bit longer. So first of all, what is repentance? Two things to say about repentance. Um, There are two words that are often used to translate repentance. The first word, most often translated as repent, is a word that means changing your mind or your heart. Uh, For Greek scholars, it's metanoio, the verb. Uh, Metanoio or metanoia is repentance, uh, to repent. And so you see that. In, in the passage from Acts, uh, verse uh, 11, 18, which you might want to look at. 
uh, 11.18 says, then, the, uh, then, then to the Gentiles also God has granted metanoia, repentance that leads to life. Uh, so change, it's changing your mind or your heart. So what, what is it changing your mind or your heart about? Well, of course, it's changing your mind or your heart about your sin. It's realizing that you are a sinner and that you have a changed view of that sin. Previously, you just indulge in your sins. You just do what you like. Uh, we, that's the trouble with sin. It's enjoyable. It, that's why we do it. It has fun, a fun aspect to it for many aspects of it. Often it turns out bad. It always turns out bad, in fact. But at the time you're doing it, there are certain pleasures in sinning. But you have this change of mind when you become a Christian. When you get repentance, you change your view of that sin. Um, John the Baptist came into the world pointing people to Jesus. He also called people to be baptized. And that was a baptism of repentance. The act of getting baptized with John the Baptist was a turning away from your previous sins and turning to Believing in Christ. Uh, John was, was calling people to recognize their sins that they're in the habit of committing. To change their minds about their sins. And then come and receive forgiveness. Uh, so that's the, uh, the motion that's behind uh, repentance. It's a turning from the old way to Christ. To the new way. Uh, a new way of living. And a good example of that is... Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1.9, uh, where Paul writes about these believers who turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Turned to God, to God from idols. Turned to God from all your sinful practices. Turned to God. That's the motion. So, metanoia, change of mind, change of heart. The second word that he uses, which is much less often, is uh, metamelomai. Um, I'm sure that's helpful to you. <laughs> um, but that, this, that word carries more of a sense of regret, of sadness or grief or sorrow at the sins. It's about wanting uh, something else to happen that then actually happened. Wishing that that didn't happen. And so in this context, it's regret for an old, the old way of life uh, as you turn to the new. So one word, the first word is about a motion towards, of turning towards Christ and change. The other is about an inner disposition, an attitude towards the sin that has made the turning uh, important. Now that's just a skeletal description. What is Repentance. Uh, we'll dig into it more later as we ask for the, what the marks are and the signs are of true repentance. But now, I want to just ask the question, where does this repentance come from? Where does it come from? What do you think? Many people think that it's just a matter of making a decision. I decide to turn from my old life to go to the new life. And, in other words... Repentance comes from us. It has its origin in us. It's an act of the will. It's an act of decision, an act of the heart, an act of the the mind uh, to to go and do the right thing. Uh, 
But I want you to draw your attention to how these apostles put it in Acts 11, verse 12. Uh, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God grants repentance that leads to life. And they didn't just say that of the Gentiles. Actually, they understood that of themselves as Jews who had become believers in Jesus Christ. If you look back to Acts chapter 5, verse 31, uh, he says this. Uh, The apostles said, Peter and the apostles say this, uh, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So uh, repentance is a gift that is given from God to people to believe. This is the amazing thing. This is the amazing grace of God that he grants repentance to people. So the origin of repentance is not me at all or you. The origin of repentance is God himself. It comes from his grace. It is a sovereign act of grace who gives this wonderful thing called repentance. It's a change of mind, a turning from the old life to God and the Lord Jesus Christ and humble regret for the sins of the past. You hate your sins. You, you look at them and you think, well, that's awful. What have I done? How could I have lived like that? That's what repentance is. And if you think about it, it can only be that way that God gives repentance. If you consider the steps that we have considered so far in this series, all the steps are Involve divine initiative. The call is from God. Regeneration is from God. Faith is a gift of God. Repentance is granted by God. God brings it all and does it all for us. And it's for this simple reason that the, for this simple reason, because the, the problem of your sin, my sin, is so deep, so crippling, so mortifying, that actually, left to myself, I cannot take any initiative to deal with it because I love my sin. That's a tr- As I said, that's the trouble with sin. You love it. You kind of enjoy it. And we can't respond to the gospel by ourselves. And so we need God to call us, to wake us up, to give us life, to grant faith to us, and to give us repentance. God needs to do it. That's why we need to pray that God would have mercy on people by granting not only faith but repentance, turning away from sin. Only by the power of God can this be done. Now, at this point, I need to ask you um, have you experienced this repentance? Have you experienced repent, true repentance in your own soul? Just as you have, may say you've, you've experienced faith in Jesus Christ. Have you experienced true repentance from your sins to Jesus Christ? Have you turned away from all your past life? Have you left it behind and gone to Christ, from whom alone is, in whom alone is the mercy that you need? Well, as we think about that, let's move on to our final point, which we'll take a bit longer on. What are the marks of true repentance? What does repentance look like? 
Well, God-given repentance has certain characteristics. Now, for this, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And just the four verses we looked at a moment ago. Um, And the background to this letter is, is, you may know this already, but Paul has written previously in 1 Corinthians. And it's, it's a difficult relationship Paul has with this church in Corinth. Um, and in his previous letter, he has been uncompromising on the many sins that are present in the Corinthian church. And now he's writing, having received news back from the Corinthians. And he's heard something about how they've responded to his first letter. And so verse 8 says this, uh, Even if I made you grieve with my letter. So his letter was quite grievous to them. Because he was pointing out their sins. But I do not regret it. Though I I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through it. So actually it turned out for good that you were grieved. So that you'd properly repent. Um, And so true repentance produces this thing called godly grief or godly sorrow. That's what Paul is referring to here. And it's that that produces true repentance. Now, of course, there is such a thing as a worldly grief. Now, what's a worldly grief? Well, by definition, it doesn't lead to repentance. It just leads to sorrow. It just sticks at sorrow. And sadness. Um, and it's the, for example, it's the kind of sorrow that emerges when you have been found out about something. But actually, you're quite glad you did it, but you're found out and you're embarrassed or you're ashamed. And so it's that kind of sorrow that emerges. That's a, a worldly uh, sorrow. Where you regret the sin, not because of the sin, but you regret the sin because of the consequences and how bad it's made your life. And so there's sadness about that. But that's not true repentance. That's just just uh, grief. uh, Worldly grief. And it's the same with God. God. Ungodly grief comes from the fear of wrath and judgment from people and even from God. This, this ungodly grief leads to this fear of judgment from people or from God. But in your heart of hearts, you still love the sin and you don't let go of it. In a sense, you hold on to it. And you start, you can just imagine how this happens. I'm, I'm sorry for this, the consequences of my sin, but actually in, within my heart of hearts, I'm beginning to justify why I did the sin, why it's a good thing to do, or why it's an okay thing to do, or why you know, it's acceptable, and why, why, are you, why are you worried about it? Why are you talking about it? You know, this, this is the kind of rationale that goes on. A, a God, an ungodly grief, a worldly grief. So what's this godly grief that, that leads to true repentance? Well, there are a number of words and phrases that Paul uses which we should work through here. And as we do so, there's an opportunity for each of us to examine our own hearts as we do this. This is how the Word of God is supposed to work. You're supposed to examine yourself in the light of God's Word so that He can do work in you. 
So let's look at these things. The first number of things he lists in verses 10 and 11. First of all, earnestness. Earnestness. And this means being serious about the sin itself. Uh, There's that sense of gravity about the problem, the nature of the problem. Not about the consequences, but, but the root problem. You have that earnestness about wanting to deal with that problem. And when you don't have this earnestness, there's what's, here's how John Calvin put it. He said, there is a certain drowsiness about sin. That's, quite a, that's a really good way of putting, putting it when you're not properly earnest. There's a certain drowsiness comes into sin. You know, I, I think you could say that about much of the evangelical church today. There is a drowsiness about sin. Oh, just dozing around. Oh, I don't know what's going on really. But it doesn't matter. I just enjoy my doziness and drowsiness. And actually, it's sin. sin is there. And it's being allowed to flourish like the weeds that grow up in the garden. And your garden's a mess. Your life's a mess. Because of this drowsiness. So, um, earnestness. Second thing is eagerness to clear yourselves. Uh, now, one could misunderstand this as defending yourself against accusation. Uh, for example, saying, I sinned, but it wasn't my fault. It was for all these sort of reasons and so on. Um, however, this is what it seems to mean here. What Paul seems to mean here is an eagerness to appeal to God for pardon and for mercy. An eagerness to clear yourself. That's the only way you can get clear of the, the sin that stands against you. The accusation that stands against you is to appeal to God's mercy and his grace. And that's what he freely offers in the gospel. But there's that eagerness to clear yourself, to get a pardon from God, not just from your friends, not just from the church, not even from the elders, but from God, that he would clear you and acquit you of all your sin. Thirdly, there's a sense of indignation. This is what happens when you... You come to hate wrongdoing. And you see it in yourself. And there's a sense of indignation about your own self. And the state you've got yourself into. You hate its, the fact that it's in you. You hate its effect. You hate everything about it. And you actually begin to share in God's view of your sin. So God hates sin. And you, as a repentant sinner, also hate that sin. You see it as horrible. You detest it yourself. And so you can see that this response goes much deeper than merely regretting that your sin has been found out. You see, people can pretend repentance by expressing sorrow for sin that's come out. But secretly the thought process may be something totally different. If only I had not been found out, you might think. Then I would not be in this trouble. Well, go deeper. If only you hadn't sinned in the first place, then you wouldn't be found out. You wouldn't go deeper. Hate the sin, not just the consequences of the sin. That's what he's getting at. This sense of indignation, true indignation. Fourth thing, fear. There's a true fear comes in. This is about the consequences of sin. Particularly about the relationship to impaired relationships. In this case, Paul with the Corinthian church. It grieved them that their sin might have damaged their relationship with Paul. 
But more importantly, their relationship to God. How their sin grieves your relationship to God. If you continue in sin, you grieve that relationship with God. It creates a separation between you and God. And there is, as it were, a closed door. God doesn't hear your prayers when you cherish your sins, Psalm 66, 18 to 20. If you cherish your sin, he does not hear you. So fear comes in, which fears being separated from God like this. Without fear, there can be no repentance. Fifthly, longing. We're almost at the end. We've got seven things to get through, I think. Longing. True repentance and true grief over sin leads to an intense hungering and longing. What for? Well, he doesn't spell out explicitly. But we can guess and deduce it from other passages of Scripture. The general thrust of what he's getting at. There's this longing for sin to be gone, for relationships to be right, especially with God. This longing and hungering for God uh, to be close to him in fellowship with him and to be right with your brothers and sisters. True repentance leads to this longing. Ungodly grief doesn't produce anything like that. Why should all these people care about my sins? Sixthly, zeal. Zeal. And this is the desire to be back in service. To be useful again to the Lord and to the church. To use your gifts for the common good. To the glory of his name. To serve in the building up of the church. And for the the advancement of the kingdom. Zeal for the kingdom of God. True repentance always leads to zeal. Seventh. I think this is the last one. Punishment. (laughs) Punishment. This is about putting right what has been made wrong. True repentance seeks to put right damage that has been done by one's sin. A great example of that is, of course, Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Remember Zacchaeus? Uh, tax collector, too small to see Jesus over the heads of the crowd, and so he climbs a tree, and he looks and he cries out to Jesus, or Jesus, rather, Jesus comes to him and says, come down Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for tea tonight. And, uh, you know, this tax collector was extorting money, using his power and influence to extort money out of people, the poor people, and uh, taking advantage of the rule of the Romans to advance himself. And uh, he comes to faith in Christ and he, he decides he needs to repent of his sins. He needs, to, he needs to do something about all of this evil he's perpetrated. And so he gives away his gifts to the poor. Gives away everything to the poor. No questions asked. That's the thing to do. I'm going to try and put right what I've done wrong. And for the specific acts of defrauding, he paid back fourfold. I have no doubt, and you can just imagine that, how is that possible? I have no doubt Zacchaeus bankrupted himself to come to faith in Christ, to truly repent of his sin. But godly grief brings about this kind of response of true repentance, leading to bearing the weight of your sin and your wrongdoing. It's not redemptive. Christ has done all that. But you seek to put right what has done, been done wrong. 
This is what we expect, therefore, in genuine faith in Christ. Uh, along with genuine faith in Christ is true repentance. So I ask you again, have you repented of your sins? Are you continuing to repent of your sins? Or are you presuming on God's forgiveness such that your life remains unchanged because you think that God will just mop up after you? Are you simply sad when your sins become visible? But there's no real inner heart change. I want to suggest to you that if that's the case, it is ungodly grief that Paul speaks of. And in verse 10, Paul says this ungodly grief leads to death. Grief is of no value whatsoever unless it leads to repentance. In other words, you are not saved if you do not have this godly grief and godly repentance. You cannot be saved without repentance. It's not repentance that saves you, but without it you can't be saved. Just think the logic through in that. It must be there, or you cannot be saved. It goes hand in hand with faith, living faith, in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the one who saves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this marvelous uh, topic of repentance. It's challenging in so many ways. But we pray you grant us repentance in this church. Uh, For every single person here, we would know to repent of our sins. We'd have the sense of the, the weight and gravity of our sins before a holy God. But Lord, you grant to us that repentance that leads to joy and faith in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.